I mean, it's, it's good, obviously, to be here with brothers and sisters in Christ, but also close friends. So it, this is kind of a special moment. Uh, thanks for <laughs> coming here and taking your Sunday night to hear me preach a message for seminary. And as I told you guys, or as maybe you've heard, we're going to go through uh, the first chapter of the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bible, you can go to the first chapter. Now, if I were to put before you five boxes, let's just say they're one foot by one foot by one foot, five boxes, one's made of cardboard, another's made of wood, another's made of metal, one's made of plastic, and the last one's made of paper. And I was to ask you to stack these boxes in an order, which would allow for you to stack all five of them on top of each other and make a five box tower. How would you stack these boxes? And it should be pretty obvious to all of us that the densest, the strongest, the heaviest box would obviously go on the bottom. And that the very top would be the lightest and the least dense box. So it would probably be metal, then wood, then plastic, then cardboard, then paper, I think. (laughs) And if you were just to mess up the order of one box, you would not be able to accomplish this task of making a five-box tower with these different boxes. So as we go into the first chapter of Colossians, we have to realize that the historical context behind this book is that Paul is writing to a church that is experiencing an assault by a false gospel. And so the way in which he orders this book is he starts with the things that are the densest or the heaviest or the most foundational to us. These things that have to do with the gospel. And the nature of Christ. And that's why, obviously, we see in this first chapter, and we'll get to it in a few sermons from now, but one of the most amazing explanations of the deity of Christ and the nature of Christ. And so, keep in mind as we enter into this mini-series that, again, Paul is refuting a false gospel, and he's going to give us the things that we need most foundationally. And so, a broader historical context around this book Paul is writing a letter to this Colossian church in the city of Colossae. It was once a vibrant city. It had a, a pretty good textile industry. And it, had, it was in the middle of crossroads, a highway going east and west and a highway going north and south. Two very busy highways. But one day, the highway that was going north and south decided to switch about 15 miles west and run through a town called Laodicea. And you might recognize that town from the book of Revelation. And so as soon as that highway switched, the town of Colossae soon dwindled. And in fact, there was an earthquake that hit this area in about the year 60. And Laodicea, because it was booming, quickly was rebuilt. The town of Colossae, in a sense, was slower to be rebuilt. However, we do know that Colossae was a diverse city. Its diversity likely gave rise to these false teachers that are now plaguing this church. We also know that a man named Epaphras founded the church. He was converted by Paul in Ephesus, uh, and he was originally from this town of Colossae. So he was converted in Ephesus and went back to reach his people. We also know that Paul, who was writing this letter, actually never visited this church or visited this city. But we know that Epaphras, having been in this church and having been experienced this assault from this false, false gospel, really saw that it was necessary to go to Paul wherever he was to get his guidance, to get his help. 
And so Paul, as a grandfather, if you think of it that way, to the Colossian church, writes this letter in response and then gives it to a man named Tychicus to deliver. I might have pronounced that name wrong. (laughs) So most of the Christians in this church are Gentiles, though there's probably a pretty good Jewish presence. When Paul wrote this letter, it was actually heavily debated. Uh, scholars have debated it for a long time. One thing we do know, though, is that he wrote it from prison. So that obviously narrows the places that he could be and the time that he could be writing it. And all these, if we weigh all these factors and, and we look at all these, these things, we really limit the possibilities to two cities, his imprisonment in Rome or his imprisonment in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is much closer to the city of Colossae than Rome is. But the scales are slightly tipped. And when I mean slightly, I really do mean slightly tipped towards us thinking that he wrote this letter from his imprisonment in Rome and right around the year 60 to 61. Now, obviously, this means that he wrote this letter without knowledge of the earthquake that happened in the 60s. So it could very well be true that if he is writing from Rome, Epaphras left the city of Colossae right before the earthquake hit. Now, if he wrote it after the year 6061, he would have mentioned the earthquake. But he doesn't. So we have good reason to believe it's right around in the early 60s, right before the earthquake. So again, the purpose of this letter is to supply the Colossians with ammunition that they need to ward off these false teachers. And it's fitting that as Paul moves into his defense against these false teachers, he starts with thanksgiving on the gospel and its fruit in the lives of the Colossians. And now as we work through chapter 1, we're going to begin tonight with three gospel realities that ground you when your faith is assaulted. So we're going to be looking at three gospel realities that ground you when your faith is assaulted. And so let's read our text this morning, or this night. (laughs) And it's in verses 1 through 8 is what we're going to be looking at. So follow along with me in your Bibles, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul's logic starts with a present reality and then moves to its source reality. So the present reality is that Paul is giving thanks as he's writing this letter. And then he kind of traces back these, this line back to the source reality, which is that Epaphras turned up to the Colossians one day and preached the gospel to him, and the gospel came in an effectual power and changed them and multiplied and bore fruit, as our text says. And so we, to help understand this flow or this progression that the gospel produces in the life of individuals, we're actually going to start in verse 6 and 7 and work back to verse 3 so that we can work linearly or chronologically in order. Before we get to these three gospel realities, these 
three realities that the gospel produces in our lives, we have to understand a few things about the gospel first. And so if you look at verses 6 and 7 with me in your Bibles, you're going to see three words that are very interesting. I'm just going to read verses 6 and 7. Try to see if you can find these three words that are somewhat related. It says, Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And these three words are, hear, learn, and understand. So what does this tell us about the gospel? Well, it tells us that the gospel is a message of content. Meaning the gospel tells us real information that we learn and we understand. It's rational, it's logical, it's knowable, and it's transmitted through language. And in the case of the Colossians, it was transmitted through the preaching of the gospel message by the man Epaphras. So they heard this content of the gospel. In, in order, as our text says, the gospel is first heard, then it is learned, and then it is understood. Now this means that we can't share the gospel with our lives. And sometimes you hear people say that. Well, I just share the gospel with my life. A good friend of mine in ministry likes to say, in response to that, live the Pythagorean theorem. He says, live the Pythagorean theorem. And you go, what? Live the Pythagorean theorem? What are you talking about? He goes, live it. Explain the Pythagorean theorem to me with your life. And you can't. If you know what the Pythagorean theorem is, it's in math with right triangles, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. You've probably heard that before. It's content. And you have to learn it and you have to understand it. You have to realize that it's actually dealing with right triangles. You have to be taught these things. You can't just live it out. And you think of it this way. There's a, maybe you have a friend and he's looking at this piece of paper with this right triangle on it. And he sees that there's a length for the two shortest sides of this right triangle. And he's just going, ah, I wish I just knew how to figure out the length of this third side. I don't have a ruler, so I don't know how. And you go, ah, oh, what you need is the Pythagorean theorem. And then you just leave it at that. That doesn't really help them. Oh, okay, I need this Pythagorean theorem. But you didn't actually tell me what it is. It doesn't actually help me. And so we see this so often when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel or evangelism. Or people think they're doing evangelism. They think they can do it with their lives. And they might even say, well, what you need is the gospel. What you need is Jesus Christ. Great. Well, now what? Tell me about the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. How he took my sin on his body and paid the penalty that I could not pay. Tell me about the content of the gospel, not just that I need it. And so that's what we see in this text here. Paul uses this word here, learn and understand. It's content and content needs to be taught and understood. It can't just be lived out. So keeping in mind that the gospel is content that must be heard, learned, and understood. Let's actually look at our first gospel reality that grounds you when your faith is assaulted. And that first reality is this. The gospel reveals the grace of God and the hope of heaven. The gospel reveals the grace of God and the hope of heaven. If you would read through our text, and again, we're kind of going out of order, so it's a little confusing. But you would see that uh, at the very end of verse 6, we see that since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, 
And if you to go back to verse 5, we see because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So that's where we're getting these things from. The gospel reveals these things. Now the word grace, we're going to start with grace, is a very loaded term. If you were to translate the Greek word that we translate grace literally, it would be gift or favor. Thus the gospel reveals God's gift to us. But salvific grace is more than just a gift. It's an undeserved gift. And herein lies the key. We would have to be undeserving to receive an undeserved gift. The people that it is given to have to be sinful. They have to be undeserving. So what is the first piece of content in this gospel message? The first piece of content it's that humanity is sinful, lawless, guilty, and enemies of a holy, righteous, triune, eternal God. That is the first content, piece of content in this message. And these people, they're deserving of a just punishment for their sin, which is the wrath of this holy God, poured out on them in an eternity of hellfire. So if that's the first piece of content, the grace of God... What is the gift? Well, the gift is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is heaven. Well, what is heaven? Well, heaven is that place where God's children will dwell in his holy presence forever. They'll dwell in his presence having been eradicated of all their sin. Having been made right before him. Heaven is that place where our purpose for existence is fully realized. And what is our purpose for existence? The purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Heaven is that place where that purpose is fully realized. Sin hinders us for that, from that purpose. But in heaven, we, are being, we have been totally eradicated from sin. And this is exactly what Romans 6.23 tells us about this gift. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now when I'm sharing the gospel in an evangelistic encounter... I like to use an analogy to explain grace. And some of you have probably heard me use it. I know Justin's probably heard me use it. And we all know that there are laws in our country. We all know traffic laws. And the easiest of the traffic laws is don't speed. And there's speeding limits, you know, and there's signs all over the roads. So the analogy really starts like this. Just imagine you're driving down the highway. And for the sake of this analogy, we'll be in Minnesota because the fines in North Dakota are somewhat... Lousy. <laughs> 12 bucks, 8 bucks, I don't know. But say we're in Minnesota, we're speeding down the highway, and we get pulled over by the cop. We know we're speeding, we know the law. The cop pulls you over. What's justice? Justice is you pay the fine. Let's just say it's $300. You pay $300. That's justice. You broke the law, you pay the fine. What's mercy? Cop lets you off with a warning. Don't do it again. And we've probably experienced that. Probably almost every, every one of us has experienced both justice and mercy when it comes to speeding. But then what's grace? Grace is that on behalf of the government who made the law, the cop writes you a $300 check that you can now deposit into your bank account. That's grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor, an undeserved gift. A $600 swing by nothing that you did the only thing that you did was break the law and you now get 
a surplus in your account. That's the grace of God. Now, let's for a moment think about proportionality. Because our fine, our punishment is proportional to the type of crime that we commit. We see it in speeding. We see it in everything. So now just a different picture. Imagine now you are visiting a prison. And you get to interact with the inmates. And you go up to the first inmate that you see. And you ask him, how many years are you serving? What's your time? And he says, oh, I have to serve two years. And you probably do deduce that he's in there for maybe theft, maybe some drug thing. The next guy you go up to, you ask him how many years he's serving. He says he's serving a life sentence. And instantly, you conclude that he's probably a murderer. And why would you conclude that? Because the sentence, the penalty is in proportion with the crime committed. So now think about yourself for a moment. What is your punishment? Your punishment, your sentence is an eternal sentence in hell where the flames are never quenched, the worm never dies, and all hope has been eradicated. And just remember this, that God is a just God. God is a righteous God. And God is an impartial God. And therefore, your penalty, your sentence, is in exact proportion to the crime that you have committed against him. And only when we understand that will we understand this grace of God and truth, as our text says. Only when we understand how severe hell is, how severe our sin is, will we truly understand the grace of God. So, that is the first point of contact, content that the gospel reveals to us, the grace of God and truth. And thus, that brings us to the second point, the hope of heaven. Look with me at verse 5 again. That's where we see this. It says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's part of why Paul is giving thanks. This language is actually pretty revealing. It says that this hope is laid up for us in heaven, meaning there's some substance to it. And it means it's actually in existence right now. It's laid up for us right as we speak in heaven, waiting for us. It's not something that doesn't exist and one day will exist. It's something that absolutely does exist and we wait for it with anticipation and longing. We groan for this hope in heaven. This, whatever it is in heaven, we'll talk about that. It reminds me of the presents under the Christmas tree of all things. There they are, wrapped up. My parents would wrap the presents up weeks before Christmas, maybe three weeks before Christmas and my sister and I had to Look at these presents wrapped up for weeks, just groaning and longing and oh, oh. and we would we would you know we would complain to my dad he was a sucker and we usually were able to open up the presents a few days early, but that's the feeling. There they are. There they are under the tree. They're real. They exist, and I just want to open them up. And so we know that we have a hope in heaven laid up for us, something of real substance. And we long for it. We crave it. We groan. We say, God, come back so we can put on this blessing that you have laid up for us in heaven. God, come back quick. Or we might even long for death because we know 
when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. Listen to how Peter describes his hope in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6. Part of the verse is actually on this banner behind me. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this hope is an inheritance, it says, and it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. It's kept for us in heaven. That's amazing. So we long for this imperishable, undefiled, unfading hope in heaven. So what exactly is this hope, though? I've been talking about it. What actually is it? Well, one commentator defined it like this. He says, this hope is the totality of blessing that awaits the Christian in the life to come. Somewhat of a vague definition again, but the totality of blessing. All of it. What does this include? Well, likely our imperishable, immortal body, which is sinless, perfect, undefiled, without blemish, totally free of any sinful temptation or lust, no more tension in our body between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. It's likely our treasure and eternal reward that we have stored up for doing good works and being obedient in this life and suffering for the the name of Christ in this life. It's also very much likely Christ himself in the presence of God. Those are three aspects of this blessing that's waiting for us in heaven. Now, what is the guarantee of this hope? Sometimes, you know, the world has defined hope as something that's uncertain. Well, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that I'll get this job. I'm hoping that blah, 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 fill in the blank. A Christian hope is not something that's uncertain. It's something that's 100% certain because it has a guarantee. What is this guarantee? Consider with me Ephesians 1.13. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Again, that word, inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what is this guarantee? It's the Spirit of God who has sealed us. We hear this gospel message proclaimed to us and we believe in him and we hear about this hope laid up for us in heaven. We hear about this eternal life and then the Spirit comes into us, regenerates us, and seals us as a guarantee that we will acquire this inheritance one day. And certainly this means that we cannot lose our salvation if we've been saved. It's a guarantee. Now today, we are certainly eyewitnesses to a world that lacks hope in a life to come. They have no hope in heaven. And the coronavirus has revealed that to us very, very, very clearly. People are terrified of death. They don't know what's going to happen after they die. The only thing they can do is live for this life. So they do it. They'll do anything to get one more moment, one more day. 
It's crazy what lengths people will go to, how irrational they will be because they have no hope in heaven. And only the gospel can give you this hope in heaven. Only the gospel. You know, a simple test for somebody who's wondering, well, do I have this hope in heaven? Well, did the coronavirus cause fear in your life? Were you terrified of the coronavirus? Is our current social unrest in our country, again, causing fear in you? Even the trajectory of our country right now is going towards this reality that Christians are going to be very persecuted very soon. The time of peace for Christians in America is just about over. How does that make you feel? Does it terrify you? If you have your hope in this world, it likely will. But if your hope is in heaven, come on, bring it on. Now our text says something very interesting. It says that this hope is the foundation of our faith and our love. Thus, we are brought to our second gospel reality. The gospel produces faith in Christ and love for the saints. The gospel produces faith in Christ and love for the saints. So look with me at the very beginning of our passage, well, starting in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the text really says, and it's easier to see in the Greek, actually, that the hope laid up for you in heaven is indeed the bedrock, the foundation for this faith in Christ and this love for the saints. So if we remember the gospel's content, we are hearing, we are learning, and we are understanding this content. Now, once we learn about our sin, our deserved punishment, Christ's life of perfection, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and this hope laid up for, for us in heaven, we come to a critical question. Who is it that understands this content? They're hearing, they're learning. Now, who is it that understands? The person that understands is the person that turns to Christ in faith. The person who has been given faith. That's why Paul is giving thanks for the Colossians' faith. And this faith comes from the bedrock of hope. So we've all heard that we're saved through faith. But what does that mean again? What does is, what is saving faith mean? We can get hung up on this a lot. Because what actually saves us is the crucifixion of Christ on the cross and the imputation or the accreditation of Christ's righteousness to us. That's what saves us. The fact that my sin and your sin was actually put on Christ 2,000 years ago and the wrath of God was poured out on him in my place. That's what saved me. And then me getting the righteousness of Christ, blanketing me, cloaking me, that's what saves me. So why do we say we're saved? Through faith. What has to do with the imputation of the righteousness of Christ? You can think of faith as a channel or an avenue or a road or a pipe, whatever you want to think of, something that things travel through. And when we hear this gospel message, and the Spirit of God comes on us powerfully and changes our heart. He gives us as a gift faith. And through faith, think of it as an avenue or a channel, through faith he accredits us or imputes us the righteousness of Christ. That's how we are saved. That's why we are saved through faith. Now, 
we also live by faith. We're saved through, through faith, but we live by faith. So how does faith actually practically look in our lives? I can't just pull out my tube and say, here's my channel, that, faith was, that righteousness was accredited to me. So how does it practically look in our lives? Well, practically, it appears to us intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. So intellectually, saving faith is that we believe true things about God. We believe the Bible. We believe that God is eternal. We believe that he created all things. We believe that we're sinners, that we deserve wrath. We believe that Christ is God and man, that he lived the perfect life, that he paid for our sin on the cross, that he raised again three days later. We believe these things intellectually. Faith is emotional, meaning we feel true affections for Christ. We actually want him. We actually desire him. We actually love him. The affections that you feel for the closest people that you have in your life on earth, a spouse maybe, a brother, a sister, a parent, you feel those affections for Christ even more. You love him. You want him. There's nothing that could come in between you and him. You feel it. So you believe it, you feel it, and then volition, meaning your will. Your will is so moved and stirred up by these beliefs and these feelings that you change the way you live your life. You act differently. Meaning you repent of your sin. You read the Bible and you see how you ought to live. You see what is sin and you don't want to do it anymore. So you turn to Christ in faith, repent of your sins, and you will be saved. That's saving faith. That's how it looks practically in your life. So, our text tells us that this hope is a foundation for not only this saving faith, but also it's the bedrock for our love for the saints. So, the love for the saints is the ultimate fruit of salvation. If you've truly been saved, if you truly have this hope in heaven, you will love. You will love. It's not an option. Consider with me what the Apostle John says in 1 John Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Listen to these words. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Or just a chapter later in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Very clear. If you don't love your brother, you are of the devil. It is the clearest evidence of salvation that you love. Now, herein lies an incredible point of application for us today. And I think we really need to discuss this and spend some time on this. Because we're, we're told something completely different in our culture, in our media. Especially when it comes to this issue of racial injustice right now in our country. We're told that to love our black brothers and sisters, we have to become advocates, protesters of racial and systemic injustice. That we have to go into the streets. That we have to vote a certain way. That we have to confess our inherent sin of white privilege, that we have to pay reparations, things like that. That is how we are told we have to show love. Now, I was scrolling through Facebook a few days ago, 
And if you want to get mad, you scroll through Facebook today. <laughs> and I saw a flowchart. And it, this flowchart said this, how to become anti-racist. So it was directed towards white people. And this is the progression of how you become anti-racist. Now, this is very interesting. Think about this from a Christian presupposition with me. It's telling you that there is a progression to, be, to becoming really somebody who hates somebody to somebody who loves somebody. But there is no room for this gray area or this progression in the Christian life. If you're a non-Christian, you hate. If you're a Christian, you love. There is no in-between. There is no, oh, well, now you're a Christian, so you're halfway there. There is no flow chart. There is no progression. Because if you're a child of God, you love your brother. It does not matter what color of skin he is. If he's black or he's white or he's Chinese or he's Mexican, you love him. You have to. And if you don't, you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter the level of melanin in his skin. Now, at the very end of this flow chart, there are some things that characterize somebody who has reached the goal of becoming anti-racist. Now listen to a few of these things that they listed on there. You have become anti-racist when you surround yourself with others who think and look differently than you. You have become anti-racist when you yield positions of power to those otherwise marginalized. You have become anti-racist when you educate your peers on how racism harms your profession. You become anti-racist when you speak out, when you see racism in action. You become anti-racist when you promote and advocate for policies and leaders that are anti-racist. You become anti-racist when you identify how you may unknowingly benefit from racism. I don't see anywhere in that list you become anti-racist when the gospel of God comes powerfully upon your soul and eradicates a hatred for man from you. All these things are stemming from a non-Christian presupposition and they have changed the definition of love. And so, again, what we're talking about right now is that the Colossians show a love for all the saints. And so we're trying to figure out what is this love that we are to show? How does it look for us today? And how do we help protect ourselves, again, from these assaults that we're facing, the assaults that the Colossians are facing? How do we protect ourselves from these assaults from the world and these different definitions of Christian terms? Now, if we think of racism, racism actually isn't a sin explicitly listed in the Bible. What racism really is, is just hatred. It's hatred for another human being. And more specifically, it's hatred for another human being simply based upon the color of their skin. It's preposterous. It's horrible. It's evil. It is sin, if that's what it really is. Now, the opposite of hatred is indeed love. That's why we're talking about this current issue right now. Well, what is true love? Well, it's hard to define, but first its source is in truth because its source is in God. God is love. God is truth. So we cannot define something as love that is antithetical to truth, antithetical to God, antithetical to the Bible. So we say that love is accepting and celebrating certain sinful behaviors. So, for instance, we're in the month of 
pride right now. So LGBTQ pride indeed is unloving and hateful because we're celebrating something that is antithetical to truth. We're celebrating a sinful behavior if you celebrate LGBTQ pride. That's not loving. That's hateful. No, the world wouldn't think that, obviously. Now, all people are indeed created in the image of God, have inherent dignity, worth, value. We all belong to one human race. But now, racism is not privilege. So we have to, again, make sure we define racism correctly. Racism is not privilege. You know, it's interesting if you go through the Bible, God gives some people things and gives others other things. Racism is not voting a certain way. Nor is racism being around people that look like you or think like you. That would mean that everybody in Africa or China is racist because they're constantly around people that look like them. That's not racism. So, we have to be very careful to calling someone a racist. Especially based upon something that is so superficial as this color of somebody's skin. Now, we as Christians are commanded to gather together to worship God, to be with like-minded people, to be with people that think the same as we think. Now, that, that doesn't make us racist. That's a command given to us by God. Gather together as a church. Gather with those who share this bond with you that no other people outside of the church share. And what is that bond? The Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting, when I go to Africa to do ministry, I'm worshiping with hundreds of Africans. And I'm one of two white people there. Surrounded by black people. And I feel an amazing, sweet fellowship. And I feel the presence of God, and I'm worshiping God, and it's amazing. I'm not even thinking about the color of skin. And then I go to Castleton, maybe one of the whitest places on earth. <laughs> and, and I worship with white people. And it's a sweet fellowship. And it's glorifying to God. And I experience the presence of God. And I'm not thinking about the color of anybody's skin. I'm thinking about God. Now, why is that? It's because we all share the Holy Spirit. I don't need to go to a church that has a diversity of skin colors to somehow be more virtuous or righteous. I need to go to a place that truly has people who are spirit-sealed. And then we can experience a brotherly love. Now, as we saw on our list, they say that to become anti-racist, you have to speak out against racism when you see it. Now, this is very interesting. If indeed what you see is racism, I think that would be great for you to do that. I think you should speak out against racism if it truly is racism. If somebody truly is hating on somebody because of the color of their skin, you should speak out against that. That's sin. But again, be careful to make sure that what you are truly seeing indeed is racism. Truly is antithetical to love, which we're commanded to do. But if you call ra racism out in somebody and what they were doing wasn't racism, then what do you do? You slander. And that's not good, obviously. But now I want to ask you a question. Do you speak out when you see other forms of wickedness in this world? 
Do you speak out when over 300 black babies are slaughtered in their mother's womb every day? Every day. Do we speak out at the fact that likely over 100 million babies have been slaughtered in their mother's womb since Roe versus Wade in America? Do you speak out when you see sexual immorality? Do you speak out against homosexuality and transgenderism and egalitarianism? Do you speak out against divorce and adultery? Do you speak out against laziness and apathy? Do you speak out against pride and malice and slander and gossip? Do you speak out against drunkenness and drug addiction? Do you speak out against lying and stealing and coveting and envying and greed? Do you speak out against hypocrisy? Yes, we should speak out against true racism. But we must not be impartial people because we do not have an impartial God. He sees all sin as wickedness. And he will punish all sin impartially. And so I think that's been a great error in our country right now. We've defined love differently and we've pigeonholed sin to just one thing. That's all we're fixated on, but we're totally blinded to all these other things happening around us. It would be preposterous today to speak out against homosexuality if we saw it. We'd be hated. So, indeed, we should be people who hate all sin and love what is truly lovely. So, again, all this to say and to circle back to this question, what is love? How are the Colossians showing love to all the saints? How are they doing this? It's actually a hard question to answer. But let's read Romans 13, 8 through 10 to kind of get a a glimpse of maybe what this love looks like. Says this, Paul says this to the Romans, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, not, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So that's why love is hard to define. Because love isn't just one thing. Love is a fulfillment of the entire law. Love is a fulfillment of every single commandment in the Bible. So when you refrain from committing adultery, you are loving. When you refrain from slander, you are loving. When you refrain from murdering, you are loving. When you refrain from stealing or coveting or envying, think of coveting. How many people in our country right now are coveting what others have? Does not God give what everyone has and then takes away too? Is he not the one that raises up a leader and gives power to somebody and takes power away from someone else? And yet we have so many people who look at what somebody has and they covet. And they say, that's not fair. That's privilege. God is in control of everything. Think of Job. The man that had everything, and he was blameless. And God took it all away. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, what were the Colossians doing to all the saints? How were they loving them? They were loving them by obeying all of the commandments to their brothers and their sisters. And not only that, but to everyone. Love your enemy, love your neighbor, love your brother. That's love. 
It's a fulfillment of everything in this book. So finally, we get to our third reality. And that is that the gospel leads to thanksgiving to God and prayer for believers. The gospel leads to thanksgiving to God and prayer for believers. So, as we start to finish up, notice a few things at the very beginning of our text, starting in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So the first thing that we notice is that Paul's thanksgiving is vertical. It's going to God the Father in heaven. We're not thanking people around us. We're thanking God above. Why? Because again, like I said, God has given us all things. We have nothing of our own. Our temporal things, our material things given to us by God. Our spiritual things, salvation given to us by God. Everything is a gift from God. Therefore, all of our thanksgiving should be directed vertically towards God. And herein lies obviously another point of application. And as I mentioned again, coveting. When we complain and we covet and we point out privilege in other people's, really what we're just saying is God has somehow unjustly apportioned stuff and that he's not in control. So let us not be like that. Let us not be people who covet and who are not thankful for what we have been given by God. Second, if we look at Paul's thanksgiving, it stems from hearing about the Colossians' faith in Christ, their love for the saints, and the hope in heaven. So, basically what this says is Paul's thanksgiving is stemming from the gospel. It's stemming from the reality that he's heard that the gospel has come to them in power. And as our text says, it's come bearing fruit and increasing. So that should produce thanksgiving in us when we hear about people who have come to know Christ through the power of the gospel. And third, Paul's thanksgiving takes place every time he prays for them. Every time he prays, he's giving thanks. Now this may not seem very special, but keep in mind that Paul's never actually met the Colossians. So this tells us really that the amount of people that Paul is praying for is quite broad. If you can imagine all the people that he has directly impacted, he's likely praying for them, and he's praying for the Colossians, people that he's never met. He's just a grandfather to them. And so it really makes us think about our prayer life. How many people are we praying for? Are we praying for people we've never met but just heard about? In a sense, that should humble us a bit. We should certainly strive to be people who are praying for as many people as we can. So now as we come to the end of this, these first eight verses in Colossians 1, keep in mind that these themes, these, these dense things, these heavy things, are what Paul is explaining. These, these themes are consistent in this first chapter. And so you'll see some repetition as we go through this mini-series. Mini but... Of all people in the world right now, we Christians should be the people who display these gospel realities in our life. Again, what are these gospel realities? Well, that the gospel reveals the grace of God and the hope in heaven. We should be displaying that. That the gospel reveals our faith in Christ and our love for all the saints. And that the gospel reveals 
that we are giving thanks for all the believers when we pray. So I hope that your life displays these gospel realities. We need to be people who love our neighbors. Especially now in our country, we need to be people who display this love. The true love, the biblical love. We need to be people who proclaim this gospel knowing that there is salvation in no other name but Christ alone. So let's lift thanks to God, even tonight, for his sovereignty and for how he has worked in our lives and how he's given us all things and he has stored up for us in heaven this inheritance. So bow your heads in prayer and pray with me right now. Lord, we, we do thank you, Lord, for how the gospel has changed us. Lord, how the gospel has shown us how gracious you truly are, how loving you truly are, Lord. How the gospel has shown us how sinful we truly are, Lord, and how undeserving we are, Lord. Lord, I pray that the gospel continues to bear fruit in our own lives, Lord, as we strive for further obedience in you. Lord, Lord, continue to change our hearts and transform our minds to be like you, Christ. Continue to bolden us, Lord, to be people who proclaim the gospel like Epaphras did to his hometown. Lord, would we be like him and would we go to the people that we have grown up with and would we be bold, Lord, to to proclaim the glorious riches of Christ, Lord. In your name, amen.